now I'm really glad that I didn't pick up the turd from that lady's lawn because she was the worst. Right, exactly. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we swap places through multitudinous galaxies, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Fraser, and I'm joined by my co-host, the jovial jelly farmer, Mike Thompson. I would totally be a jelly farmer. That seems like something that is kind of on par with my general vibe. I'm not going to lie. Like, it definitely seems very peaceful. Like, if the worst is they have is, like cordoning off cancerous jellyfish and like trying to keep them in a pen like that that sounds fairly chill yeah they um i don't know it i was like eh, that that seems nice got a nice house they're in a scenic area you know it seems pretty chill like that yeah that works for me exactly exactly living off the land <laughs> Or the jellies. <laughs> I don't actually live off the land. Sarah and I no. have had this discussion multiple times because we were talking about which characters we were. And as much as I love Ron Swanson and his diet of hating everything vegetarian, she was like, you don't work with your hands enough to be Ron. I work with my hands enough to be Ron. I was like, Ooh. yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I was like, no, I, I know that I'm, I'm actually, I am Ben. <laughs> I, am, I am Ben in the Batman suit. That's 100% true, though. With That's a little fair. bit of Andy mixed into, I've got a little bit of himbo energy. <laughs> well, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps with discoverability. Today, we'll be shining a light deep into the recesses of 1980s DC collection of obscure characters to bring you a discussion on the miniseries Spanner's Galaxy. We'll be sharing our thoughts on the series, as well as some other tidbits about the characters and the comics creation. But before we do that, Mike, what is one cool thing you've read or watched lately? So, <laughs> I have a lot of really cool stuff to get through over the next, mm, let's be honest, it's going to be a couple of months because I got a lot of fun stuff for the holidays. Like, you gave me a bunch of amazing trash 90s books which i am <laughs> so excited about but one of the really cool ones was sarah got me the death and return of superman omnibus that came out last year and you know the the death of superman is this like iconic story now it's kind of a major part of comic book history and it's been collected and reprinted a few different times but i think this is kind of the most comprehensive volume because it takes the entire arc of the death of Superman and its two ensuing events, which was Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Superman, and it collects all of them under one cover. And, like, you know, there's also a couple of other tie in issues, like from Green Lantern and other stuff. But as far as I can tell, this is like the real complete story. And it's just over 1,400 pages long. And, you know, this was such a huge event when it came out, and I read it like in real time when I was a kid 
And it's interesting to reread it 30 years later. And it's really fun too. But one thing I'm really looking forward to is getting to the funeral for a friend arc because that is about all of these people who knew Superman grieving. It's both people like Lois Lane and his parents and then superheroes who knew him. And it's just, I remember it being a rather thoughtful crossover between all of the Superman titles. And I'm curious to see how it holds up now. That sounds like a really cool rediscovery for you or yeah, at least rechecking in. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like right after things were really changing in comic books in the 80s. And so suddenly they're doing a really nice blend of like showing and telling as opposed to just where you'll sit there and get an entire page full of expositional dialogue, which, I mean, we definitely got into Knight's subject matter. <laughs> what exposition? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, my God. But, I mean, you know, that was that was real common back then. And so it, it's really neat to see narrative and artistic styles kind of in the midst of becoming what we now see really commonly. So that's also just kind of a neat little thing to, to find. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. So what about you? Well, I have been a little lower energy recently, so I have been opting to watch some media instead of reading (laughs) Mm. more than I needed to for at least this episode. So I watched, one of the things I watched at least, was the movie The House. And have you heard of this? Is, Is this like the comedy with Will Ferrell? No. Oh no. Ew god. I was Ew. like I fuck. I was you like know I, I know no wonder you looked so surprised. No, cuz everyone yeah. I hate Will Ferrell. I like I, it's mm. no secret. It's no secret I hate him. No, I mean like I sat there and I was like I I don't know if we can be friends anymore. Man. Goodness. No. And actually this the movie I'm about to talk about, I think both you and actually more so Sarah would actually really like this film. And it's it's an anthology film actually. There are three hmm. vignettes as it were within this story. Okay. And it's a stop motion adult animation. Oh, Sarah would be all over that. A hundred percent. That's why I said it. And it's not only people, but it's also anthropomorphized animals. So there are like rats and there are cats and it's a lot of fun. And so each of the stories has a different vibe and it's from a different era and it's centered around one house. And you don't really know if it's the same house, if it's just the same design of house, but it just, the the house itself, you can tell they used the set of that house Mm. in every single one of these vignettes. And it was really interesting to see what they did. And each of these people has a problem within the house that they need to resolve. I don't want to say much more than that, just because each of the vignettes was so different that I, I don't know what else to tie them together. Other than the stop motion was absolutely beautiful. And what's nice is that if you wanted to, you really could chunk it up and just like, say, watch the first vignette first and Mm -hmm. just like go about your day, do something else. Um, But they really did work well together as a set. That's really cool. Yeah. Sarah will be all over that. Totally. Yeah. She'll she'll probably watch it the next time that we're recording. (laughs) Oh. All right. Well, Mike, what do you say we move on to our main topic spanner's galaxy well i will only do so 
if our form of movement is castling. <laughs> I suddenly appear in your home. Yeah. It'd That's not, it's not COVID safe. Mm. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, we're. <laughs> God. So today's topic is a little-known mini-series from DC, Spanner's Galaxy. Co-created by Nicola Cutie and Tom Mandrake, the series ran for a total of six issues and follows the trials and tribulations of Polaris Spanner, who's wanted for something? Well, yeah. let's, <laughs> let's start at the beginning, maybe. <laughs> Starting maybe with, once again, the reason for this episode, and that is because I found this entire set at that moving sale at Outer Plains, that one that I've mentioned several times before this. We got so many books from that, and like we're it's going to be years before we cover everything that we bought there. I walked away with an entire box each of the four times I went in. So I, there's <laughs> off the top of my head, I have three different series that I want to talk about at some point this year, just from those books that we bought. I um, gave you an option of three <laughs> to do yeah. for this week. Yeah. Well, and I had Spanner's Galaxy was one that I'd never heard of before. And same. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, you said little known miniseries. You were not kidding. I even went through my various reference books. So like I looked through DC through the eighties, there's nothing mentioned there, especially I thought it would have shown up in the experiments, which was kind of their weird off the wall series. And then there's also DC comics year by year. Spanner's galaxy just isn't mentioned. And I mean, that thing is almost 400 pages. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to know the backstory for this. Even I couldn't find anything because it's, you know, <laughs> we were talking about it and I'm like, let me see if I can do some digging. Yeah, because I mentioned to Mike that I I was not able to dig up much, especially on the first when I first started looking at it. Mm -hmm. Usually I can do a quick Goog and find, you know, a few websites. It's kind of how I start doing my thing. I'll just open a bunch of browsers and kind of go through and see which ones are kind of worth my time later on. But yeah, there was just not there was not a lot like nope. coming up with the wrenches. I was like, yeah. this isn't a wrench. It's a comic book. I guess I got to get really specific. <laughs> It's called a shek. Oh, gosh, right? Goodness gracious. So I also, while I was at this comic book shop, not only was it a set, but I also picked it based on the dynamic front cover design. And I did include it here. <laughs> Would you like to describe the vibe of, they call him Poli. So I will be doing that <laughs> throughout, by the way. <laughs> That's his name now. I don't know how to describe it other than it is an absolute vibe. Um, like, <laughs> like this is one of the more bonkers outfits I have seen. Nothing about it makes sense. It's like someone basically just threw a bunch of different pieces of clothing onto this dude. So he's got like, he's got like a onesie that's in two colors, but it's got like a front flap. And then he's <laughs> also got pirate boots and like kind of a, a sci-fi I don't want to call it a crown. I want to call it a tiara. It feels very fabulous. 100%. And then he has a fur collar 
around his neck and he's holding something that sort of looks like an axe, but it could be mistaken for like a weirdly sharp wrench. It is certainly a look and I can't tell you if I like it or not, but it is, (laughs) it is serving a vibe. It would be the absolute most obscure cosplay. It would be a good cosplay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so while I couldn't find much about the history or the creation of the series, I was able to scrounge up a quote from one of the creators, Nicola Cutie, who mm-hmm. sadly passed away in February 2020. And mm-hmm. he had the following to say in a September 2019 Twitter response post. What a pleasure to see my DC limited series, Spanner's Galaxy, on Twitter. Tom Mandrake, the artist, did a bang-up job on the illustrations. It was never a big seller for DC, but it does have a cult following. I can absolutely see that. Yeah. This is such a weird, interesting series. Like, I wanted to know more after I read it. We'll talk about it later on, but, like, I think that they were hoping to do more with it, and then it just wound up not being a strong enough seller. Yeah. Probably there. They may or may not have left some doors open. So the cast of creators for the series did stay pretty consistent, except for the revolving door of letterers. The series was written by Nicola Cutie, art by Tom Mandrake, colors by Tom Zuko, edited by Alan Gold. Letterers were as follows by issue. Issues one and two were John Costanza, Issues 3 and 4, Bob LePan, Issue 5, Ben Oda, and Issue 6, Carrie Spiek-Lee. So, here's the thing, guys. You know we do that thing. We, we do that thing where we read it so that you don't have to. You can if you want to. You can go back and read it. But we're going to give you the lowdown of what happened in this thing. And again, there was a lot going on. And I whittled it down as goddamn far as I very well could. <laughs> yeah, for, for a six-issue series, this has a lot going on in it. And so much exposition. So much exposition. Like, overwhelmingly. <laughs> yeah, like, every time that I was going through an issue of this, I'd be like, God, I feel like I've been reading this for a while. How much further do we have to go? And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I've just been reading a ton of exposition, and my eyes are tired now. Yeah, and not only that, I was like, this has to be such a long issue, and I'll look, and it's only still 23, 24 pages. that's the thing, is like, (laughs) this is not a case of the Dragonlance Chronicles, where every issue was like, you know, 85 pages or whatever. It was really reasonable. I read all six of them sitting in a Starbucks with a couple copies. Like, it was really not... But... But it took me longer because they were so goddamn dense on the page. Yeah. So that's something to look forward to, everyone. So I'm going to try to to be light on the exposition, but just know that I can't promise anything based on the content. Yeah. I'm going to go issue by issue because I know, Mike, you and I, we try really hard not to talk about this stuff. (laughs) Sometimes we don't try that hard. But. You were telling me it feels really episodic. Yeah. And I agree with that. So that's actually how I wrote it out because that was how it felt as I was reading them. I'm like, it doesn't even make sense to play it out as one big thing. I might as well piece it down by the issues. Yeah. Like there's not much of a meta story. Like there, there isn't. But like at the same time, it doesn't play a lot into the core story of each issue. 
it's really it's interesting that way. Yeah, it truly doesn't. There's usually just a snippet that's like, oh, remember, remember, oh, remember, he's this, a wanted man. It's like, there's okay. this, remember, people are looking for him. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Thanks for that one page interlude. <laughs> yep. So issue number one of the Spanner's Galaxy series was published in December of 1984 with the subtitle of Cas- uh, Castling. Do you think it's Castling or Castling? Castling. Castling. Like, That's what I thought, Because it's like too. castling in chess. I See, I don't play chess. Yeah. Basically, the rook moves to the other side of the king, and it's an opening move, kind of. Ah. Uh, but yeah. It's like bowing at the beginning of a dance, I see. Yeah. So anyway, castling. Well, castling. <laughs> we start the story with Polaris, or as his friends and... Us after this point, at least myself, call him Poli Spanner, <laughs> who is from the planet of Spanner. I don't know. Uh, whatever. It, it really doesn't explain it. And, and But he looks human, so I don't know. There's lots of aliens, but he looks very human. And he's not only actively running from and participating in a pew pew fight, but is also being told in his brain that he has someone who is basically a cop named Tenna who has infiltrated his brain, his subconscious to be specific. So he would not lie to her, but it turns out that the, he's not actually in an active pew pew. This is all kind of a retrospective. Um, yeah. It's, it's that, what is it in media Reyes? Is that how you say it? That's when you like basically start in the middle of like something really epic, but it's like a flashback in the middle of something really ex- like epic. Oh, um, exactly. Basically, he's like being interrogated by some psychic entity that's been linked to him and is trying to determine whether or not he's telling the truth about something. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like showing her a scene where he's actively hiding from alien dudes that he's fighting. Like she's grilling him, but we're not really sure what about yet. <laughs> it's kind mm-hmm. of vague. So he starts just telling her about his life and his childhood. He's like, I don't know what you want from me. She sits there and she's like, I want you to go like way further back than where we are right now. God, there was way too much exposition for me to keep track of all that bullshit. <laughs> so he went back to his childhood. Blue do 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 do. So he had gone to this planet called Festi with his dad. He asks his dad to give him some money for a meat pie, as you do. But his freaking meat pie that he had just had to fucking barter for, by the way, gets stolen by some goddamn street urchin named Andromeda, who he then hunts the fuck down. And instead of harming her, shares his food and gets her more. Meanwhile... Pops is in the marketplace getting into a legit fight with a group of Kaborians who are actually anthropomorphized unicorn people. Like, they're amazing. It's so good. Like, the alien design in this comic is just so wild and inventive. I love it. Tom Mandrake, Chef's Kiss. These guys are legit. So, he's getting in a fight with these unicorn people, the Kaborians. There's a tussle about the Shek, which is a ceremonious weapon that Poli's father, Rigel, had purchased in the market. 
So this dude, Baca, also showed up to try to get involved for whatever fucking reason and convinced Rigel to just buy a different Sheck. But in the meantime, it had disappeared, only to have appeared in Poli and Rigel's rooms, left by the crafty Andromeda. So the Spanner family, not to be confused with the 90s TV family, the Tanners, owned a small jelly ranch where they grew jelly creatures that were basically cattle that gave off some sort of protoplasm that they needed or wanted. They sold. They sold it. Yeah. So it was um, basically it was the protoplasm was a, a major manufacturing component um, and it would go into like everything like, you know, from furniture to spaceships to whatever. Oh, that's right. It was kind of like plastic. That's right. That's right. But they also needed motherfucking power gems to run the family farm, apparently. So that was the real drama with the Sheck situation. Apparently the Sheck had a power gem that he was trying to gain for the farm. Any hoodle. There was some tension between the Kaborians and Spanner, I guess. So they're like, yeah, this is 1600 Europe. You should send me your child as an act of goodwill and trust. And Rigel's like, yo, it's absolutely his choice. And Polly was like, man, they do cool shit there. I want in. Peace out, fam. So he leaves to learn all the Kaborian things, including what I would say is the thing for them, which is learning how to castle. Which basically means that you can effectively switch places with someone else, but they have to be willing to switch with you and you can't castle someone into a situation that puts them in danger. There's like rules to it. Yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts about this, but we'll talk about it later. (laughs) So he grows up learns all of the things there's of course drama he like fights for his ability to blah 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 anyway he does the whole thing he's a kaborian he can castle whatever and he goes home to visit the folks and his dad gives him the old check for him to use in his battles so back to reality maybe at least a different time jump he's being interrogated again He ends up fighting his way out of whatever predicament he has wound up in that we've kind of jumped into. Also, they haven't yet told him why they want to talk to him. Still, just reminding everyone. (laughs) This is still all in the dark. I don't know why they're in his brain, but they are. It's a pretty personal place to be. He gets the fuck out of there. But we cut to Andromeda, who's now like an older street tough. I'm sorry. They're not street toughs. They call themselves pounders. Yeah. And it, it's implied that she's like a, a bounty hunter. Like, is that right? Like, yes. The problem is that a lot of the language within this comic was very confusing because they were substituting terms in for things that, you know, we would know that are already established. And I actually screenshotted the whole bit where she was talking about being like the pounder union or something like yes, that. Yes, the pounders guild. <laughs> The Pounders Guild. That's what it was. <laughs> I literally wrote that. That's my next line. <laughs> that she's forming a Pounders Union. <laughs> oh, so good. It's so great. I support that for her, honestly. But then she's like, oh, and also, side note, Spanner is on the bounty list, so let's go get him. 
And come to find out, there are wanted posters, billboards, and legit neon signs advertising to be on the lookout for this one motherfucker, Polaris Spanner. Yeah, but like it just says wanted. It's never explaining why he's wanted. Legitimately. No reason. So, issue number two. It's subtitled Icy Rivers cold death and was published in january of 1985 very fitting month for the title i must say so this continues the story of his life i guess and follows him to where he was helping another planet where there was a female alien named isoli that kept being pronounced dead, but she was really going to like low heart and breathing rates due to stress. I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah. So he like saves her from that, like, you know, woman tied to a railroad track situation. She cajoles him into being her bodyguard to get back. They go to the ship so she can like relive the trauma of being one of the only survivors and there's still fucking like bodies floating around and shit. It was pretty morbid. Along with her fiance, Ral. Remember that name? Mm -hmm. And they run into a new companion, Gidget, who is a or Gidge, I guess, who is a small bush baby type creature who can take any kind of parts and make them what they need like kind of refurbish them into like something useful very good with mechanics he's meant to be the cute plucky comic relief and i hate him with a fiery passion oh i'm not surprised you hate him yes i i thought that as much when i started reading him (laughs) he's not great don't worry polaris hates him too so the rest of the crew figures out that he's wanted and there's distrust. <laughs> and then they're attacked by the Pounders, who want to take Polian for the bounty money. Dun, dun, dun. Then they have to save Isoli because someone thinks she's dead again. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> Watch out. And then it turns out that Gasp, Ral isn't who he said he was. More distrust. <laughs> she's like fuck you dude you lied to me you're not my fiance i'm going to go join a space squad but they reject her (laughs) so (laughs) she just goes back to ral yeah okay and on the very last page it's established that poli and andy knew each other from back in the day and then baka casually shows up for like two frames just to remind us that he is going to play a part in all of this. So look out. <laughs> Wink. Yeah, Baka, I don't know. I I have feelings about this. We'll talk about it later. Mike, come on. He's a supervillain, right? Hmm. He's such a good end villain. <laughs> okay. Fuck. If you say so. so. Yeah, right? So, issue three, published in February of 1985 and titled Soul in Bondage. We start this issue off strong with Baka just coming out of a bush, just appearing again and introducing us to the character Harrison. Back to Polly. That's it. He just needed to introduce this person. Yep. That's it. 
So back to Poli. He has castled into a marsh planet where there is an ongoing rivalry of sorts between the humans and the swamp thing like reptiles called the Sanos that lived inside of the marsh. Caught up in this is a set of parents and a daughter and the daughter who's drawn to be like late teen, early adult. Yes. And then they're like, she's sick. She needs medicine and these treatments where she like goes into this bubble for a while. It's like light treatment. And there's like something mysterious about that. So they're going to look for a missing person and they think he's at this temple thing. They end up under attack from the swamp guys while on the water. And so this motherfucker's like underwater, like slicing through the bottoms of boats with his shack and shit. Go poly. Have we ever actually <laughs> described the Shek? Like, oh, you should is, describe this. Yes, describe it, this for our listeners, please. It is this weird thing. He houses it's like in a scabbard most of the time, and then he'll pull it out, and it's this weird nonsense shape. It's it looks almost like a flat billy club with I don't know how to describe the bladed part of it. It's like a spinning kind of it's a couple of different like arms that sort of are loose and can spin, I think, and they've got an edge to them, but he can maneuver it in a way that it turns into a shield at certain points. If he, I don't know, it's, it's meant to be this very utilitarian ceremonial item. And it just, it feels so goofy every time it's used or it's actually in our sight. But yeah, apparently it's this like amazing badass weapon that's made out of like the hardest material in the universe and i mean the the river people or whatever they are they look like they're kind of like frogmen yeah yeah no i agree with that so they get to the temple find the guy save him from the what what looks like it's supposed to be something like a mayan or an aztec like ritual kind yeah, of yeah there, there are some definite mesoamerican vibes with yeah. the environment designs we don't love that you know i you know, I don't have a problem with it, but the problem is, is that it always gets trotted out when they're like human sacrifice, and you're that's like, that's okay. what I don't love. It's it's really that that piece of it that it's it'd be different if it was an overall kind of an aesthetic choice without the extreme need to sacrifice a person. No, it never like for some reason like that was a real hot thing is using Mesoamerican vibes whenever they're like we need to do a human sacrifice. Like we saw that in Crazy Man. When we talked Jones. about that. Yeah. Yes. So, oh yeah. So they go to the temple. They find the guy. They save him. And then plot twist, the human girl was actually one of the Sanos the whole time. She had dropped her medicine. She couldn't be in her little bubble. Mm -hmm. And because she'd been off her medicine, she turned back into the lizard creature that she really was. Yeah. And then it's revealed her parents had actually... There was a whole backstory about like warring factions between the two types of those aliens mm -hmm. and the parents adopted her, but they couldn't bring her back to Earth or but they couldn't they couldn't bring her to their planet if she wasn't a human. And so they basically used this like light technology to change her appearance. And that's why she was constantly undergoing it, because it wasn't designed to be permanent. But they didn't fucking tell her. But they didn't tell her. And it's real problematic. Yeah, they just were like, 
I wish we told her sooner, Constance. Or whatever the fuck their names are. I it's, didn't write them down. Yeah, it's uh, it's real. It was one of those things where this was one of my notes was I was like, there's some real consent issues here. Yeah. Because they're like, well, we meant well. We love you. You're our child. And I'm like, right. But like, <sighs> but you basically performed not quite surgery, but like kind of surgery on her without her consent or without telling yeah. her, without her awareness. Yeah, and she didn't get a chance to grow up in her own culture. Like, she's going to need a fucking good therapist for this trauma, breach of trust. And then there's a whole bit where they're like, can you forgive us? And she's like, only if you come to visit me. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, because then she like, she's like, guess I got to go fuck off to my own people now. Yeah, it's, um. It was weird. It feels very clunky and very kind of like a shoehorned ending where they're like trying to make everybody feel good at the end. And I'm like, this is real problematic yeah so then baka and harris show up right after poli has left the planet oh no you know the last couple frames <laughs> they show up Mm-hmm. since he's left via ship he knew that they wouldn't be able to track him because they would if he castled but not if he just like got the fuck off the planet like manually yeah, and also Harris is Harris is pretty funny because he's like this older black guy, and he gives off some real Danny Glover in Lethal Weapon, where he's like, "I'm two days from retirement." <laughs> <laughs> he really does, though. Issue number four is subtitled "Belly of the Whale," published in March of 1985. We pick up right the fuck where we left off, with Poli having dipped off of the swamp planet. Baka and Harris in his dust. So he and Gadge end up on this planet that is very worried about germs and biological agents. So they have to decon, which means decontaminate. And that mm-hmm. ends up including cleaning and completely shaving them. Gadge which actually, included. I kind of dug because it was like a totally different look. And I was like, yeah, all right, this is cool. It was. It did get confusing when there were lots of bald people fighting, though. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> so gadge remember he looks like a bush baby he's supposed to be fuzzy so he definitely was like i need clothes (laughs) which i'm sure mike loved it was mike's favorite he you know what it was he reminded me of too much from chuck norris's karate too much i hated that so much Hated it. You guys, you guys need to go back and listen to if you have not already our Chuck Norris Karate Commandos episode. That was a good one. Yeah, it was pretty good. But Mike also had strong feelings about the uh, supporting characters. <laughs> one in particular. I want it noted. Sarah will back me up on this. Like even she was just like, "Oh, he's the worst." No, I hated it too. I just I was shaking my head in my home. I just have nobody to corroborate my dislike in the moment. Here's the thing is that when you have kids, you have a real low tolerance for like shitty comedic sidekick characters because they show up in everything. Oh, 100%. 100%. So folks on this planet are already suspicious of them, like immediately. Like somebody is like looking at him and looking at the big wanted sign like, huh? So he's making waves like upon rolling into town. And he gets blasted by a laser and then taken in by the underground orphans on this planet. 
who happened to know Polly's father, of course. So the kids let him know his dad used to tell them stories. So he also offers to tell them a story. Blah, blah, blah. We're not going to get into it. Yeah. He tells one about Bach and Caboria. I'm yeah. sure it was highly fantastical. Meanwhile, Baca, Harris, and Andy have all arrived. They're all bald, and Andy finds him first, but he escapes and gets out of danger with the help of a local named Pan. Which, it's funny, because sometimes it's Pan, P-A-N, and sometimes it's P-A-N-N. Yeah. Yeah, there were, there were some editorial oversights here. Yeah. So he leads them through, like, the pipes, like, the deck, the ducks. I'm not sure. So he fucks around in the underground for a few weeks, long enough for his hair to grow back into, like, a buzz cut length. Yeah. And that happens without, like, any actual explanation. It's just all of a sudden he's got the hair and you're like, okay. You're like, I guess he's been there for a minute. (laughs) So... Of course, shit got fouled up, and the government, like, makes an announcement into the hideaway, and it gets raided, and Pan's surrogate father gets killed, and of course he blames Polly, even though he wasn't even the one who pulled the trigger, but he was the reason everyone was there. So, I mean, okay. (laughs) So, they escape by causing chaos, and Polly ends up having to square up against Baca for an incredibly short fight where he KOs Baca and gets the fuck out. Mm-hmm. They land somewhere else, but Andy has stowed away, tries to seduce Polly, but he's having none of it. So he castles with a blob alien mid Andy trying to kiss him without consent. Which was admittedly very funny, but also I was like, I, I, I also have thoughts about Andy. Uh, we'll We'll get into it. <laughs> Yeah, I do too. So, guys, at least that was four. Uh, Five. This was published in April of 1985, entitled Night of the Butcher. We again pick up right where we left off, and Poli is figuring out where he has castled to, both himself and Gadge. He gets caught by the police for trespassing and is given the option to work or be incarcerated. The the justice system is very strange in all of these places. And he chooses to work and he's offered like a police job, which it's like, you want me to be the head of security and you just caught me snooping around? Like, how much sense does that make? He says that to the police chief. And I'm like, dude, my guy, I agree. Not logical, but whatever. Uh, He had some reason. Yes, but mm. (laughs) it was a very loose reason. There's also a very good name that he gives. Oh, yes. His name is Serious Person. (laughs) Like like, Serious, like S-I-R-I-U-S, I I think. It was. Instead of Polaris. uh, What a dumbass. I was like, this is great. I love it. No notes. My God. He just, and he, and he changed the front letters too. It's like, you guy, my guy. He's like, I like using this alias. It's like, how, how often do you do this? Mm hmm. Okay. So he immediately figures out that his sister who would have absolutely no reason to remember his face since he had aged so much since the last time they'd seen each other 
um, is on the police force. But he mm-hmm. just, like, decides to keep her in the dark for now, you know, because he's wanted for some reason. And there is a mystery in this one. And they're trying to figure out who keeps killing workers. But not just killing, dismantling and completely draining them of blood. Mm-hmm. So after a near miss where he saves his sister from a rogue robot, he goes home pretending in front of her that the rest of the family was just meeting him. And they're like, oh, please come into dinner, stranger we've never met before. <sighs> yeah, but like his his dad knows who he is. His mom knows of who course, he is. Of course. But like, like it was strange for her to invite him home in the first place. That's the only hole I see in this. Like, I think the other members of the family absolutely he would have a reason to go there. But she's the only one and she's the person who brought him there. It makes so little sense because even his kid brother knows who he is because mm-hmm. he's got his wanted poster under his bed. Yeah. It it is so weird. And he has to like um, talk him down, which yeah. yeah. Uh and they're like, we can't let her we can't let the sister know. And you're like, what I'm not I... entirely sure why they couldn't let her in on it other than yeah. to move forward the plot, but okay. Yeah, it was it was very strange. Yeah. So Baca floats back into town, of course, while on the other side of it, Poli is explaining to his brother that he has no idea why his face is on so many posters. And of course, he's super worried. Sister Lyra, meanwhile, is thinking she's caught the butcher butchering and cannot be bothered to wait for backup and gets into some trouble. Cut to Baca and company storming around the place looking for him working themselves into a motherfucking tizzy. They're talking themselves into a frenzy at this point. Oh, yeah. Like, we got to find him. We're going to kill him. We're going to fucking yep. kill him. And I'm like, dude. It's like, guys, you need to you need to take it down a notch. You, <laughs> you need, to, need to calm down. Like You're at an 11 should, right now. We need you to get it like a six. You should not have had those last three Red Bulls. Poli saves Lyra from the peril she's in. Then Baca has drama in his group because they're all worked up and they cannot emotionally regulate. And then someone tries to take out Lyra and Polly, but they take him out instead. They're like, it's the butcher. But then someone else gets killed and block twist. They figure out that it's actually a robot who's been programmed to think that people are also robots. So it skirts the Asimov robot rule that they can't harm humans because... They weren't being programmed to be read as humans. Legit, one of my favorite things, and we will talk about this later, is yeah. that they have Asimov circuits. It, I thought and that was cool. I was like, that is so funny and, and just <laughs> like, what a, what a weird little thing to throw in there. But I love it. 100%. They take the robot down, but Harris actually catches up to Polly and we get to present day because yes the entire last five issues have in fact been one massive flashback yes harris shows up at the end of the issue and busts pulley but then he reveals that he's got like some horrific pathogen inside of him that's like dormant called the hades virus the hades plague something like that yeah and they're like you need to be quarantined yeah. So you don't accidentally activate it and kill the many. So we find out that he's basically isolated in this little spaceship 
it's like one small room on some desolate planet with just Gadge there. And that is where we leave him. We have no more information than that. Yeah. And it's interesting because the end of that issue is just, it's kind of this neat little moment where he's obviously like marooned on an asteroid away from everybody. Mm-hmm. Issue number six is titled The Man in the Narconium Mask and was published in May of 1985, so a full year before yours truly appeared upon this earth. <laughs> yeah. In her best southern drawl. <laughs> this issue, once again, starts up right where it left off. With Polly and Gadge in space. And shit is getting tense, as it's clear that Polly doesn't manage his emotions well. That's kind of an ongoing trend with the men in this comic. <laughs> yeah. But they get castled back to Caboria, and they're like, you have to go to court now. But he'd been stranded up there because, you know, again, there was that dormant disease. And blah, blah, blah. But the Gaborians were like, you castled someone into peril. And that's why you're in trouble. So then the accusers and the defenders had to fight to the death. That's how that works. That's how their court system works. Again, very broken court systems. And when he found out that one of his friends was the only one that was standing up against a bunch of people to like defend him, he was like, never mind. I'm going to plead guilty. So they just would not kill his friend basically yeah and then they're like okay fine you're gonna go to prison here's a force field mask so that you can't castle but you can like eat and drink through it and like you can like wash your face and like yeah you can you can basically do everything that you want it's just like you're gonna have a golden head but yes <laughs> very like, right. strange it's okay like, i <laughs> I I was just like, there's so many other ways we could have done this, but whatever, this is fine. So many. Oh, it's all it's fine. It's fine. So he's got this gold head. That's cool. Then this pterodactyl flies up with a lady with horns on it, and she pulls both him and Gadge up and is like, Yeah, it's me, the interrogator Tenna. Bon da da. <laughs> yeah. And then she takes him to go see Harris, whom he's, you know, family friends with, we find, and Nice to see you, wife. I've heard a lot about you. Jesus Christ. And Harris breaks the news that he's been working with Baca and tells a story about Baca double-crossing him and how he left him for dead. And in an effort to find Baca, they go to a guy named Joeb. Yeah. And there's, without getting too far into it, because we don't have to, actually, there's just some Jekyll Hyde drama. Yeah. going on so with with a surprisingly problematic origin for it but whatever it's fine yeah I, yes they help him with his dilemma and then baka explosively enters the scene the shack is destroyed and andy dies in the crossfire and then plot twist they had been tools the whole time there was no <laughs> disease there wasn't really a crime which he until at that point, he really had only been accused of the crime of having, like, castled somebody into danger, and he didn't even know what that was. And that also, also, that they just wanted to keep a galactic leash on him, which I thought was really gross. Yeah. 
And so then she promises that he'll be some galactic hero suddenly for some reason. And I'm looking and there's like two pages left. And I'm like, what the, the fuck he will, right? No, but he does. And then the president, like, asks him to go hunt down Baca for him. Because now Baca's wanted. So. Yeah. It. I don't know, man. I like it... Baka basically wanted the gem on his shack to make like kind of like a black hole generator, it was implied. I didn't quite understand the end goal for what he was trying to do, but okay. No, but he did throw a piece of fruit into the black hole, and that was impressive, I guess. Yeah, and then the other thing is Baka stabs Andy with like some venom-coated blade out of nowhere. Yeah. Like it it just the final few pages feel very very rushed Mm -hmm. it feels like they got to the last few pages and they were like oh shit we have to wrap this up yes (laughs) and And oh shit this is the last one (laughs) yeah and then the last two pages the last two or three pages there is so much exposition and it's it's very much telling not showing like all of a sudden holy and his friends are all in this like records room full of scrolls and he's being <laughs> talked to about links that you know have been uncovered and it's just okay man <laughs> but it ends on that note with the president basically saying i am going to make you my my what did he call it it was like my agent extraordinaire or yeah or my agent extraordinary and i want you to hunt down certain targets and the first one is baka and they shake hands over that it's very like it feels like okay so this is going to be like the start of the next story arc but that's all we get like that's it yeah it's not really an ending like it's it is but it's like not a satisfying ending yeah well and you know maybe he showed up other places but we'll talk about that later mike what were your your thoughts on the series overall man it is a lot like it's and it's not that is not meant to be a criticism it's from that interesting era of like right around the original star wars movies where we got this very stylized fusion of like science fiction and fantasy that we really haven't seen again since and i liked that i liked how the aesthetic reminded me of the movies krull and the ice pirates I also had flashbacks to that comic Saber that we talked about in our episode mm. dealing with queer kissing and comics, like just visual style wise. Those are all from around the same time in like the early to the mid 80s. And the comic itself, I thought, was pretty interesting because it's got it's sort of a slow burn in a lot of ways. Like while we're dropped into a number of action sequences, they're all the psychic flashbacks that Spanner is providing to this psychic interrogator. And she's serving as an audience surrogate. And then there's that meandering nature of the comic where it it's kind of a double-edged sword. I liked that the story was allowed to breathe and take its time and introduce us to the larger universe that Spanner lives in. But I was also at times really frustrated at how long it took for us to find out why Spanner was a wanted man and how his core story kept getting diverted and teased out. It reminded me a bit of Robin 3000, which was the comic series that we talked about with Dear Watchers a while back Mm -hmm. on their show, where in a lot of ways, the setting felt more important than the core story itself. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, it certainly felt more important than some of the characters, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, 100%. What was your take on it? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I it was a lot, and just in the sense of, like, there was a lot going on, there was a lot on the page, there was a lot of detail to look at. I just felt like it was so, so dense. It felt like it took me longer to read than a normal comic book of this length. Yeah, I am vigorously nodding. Do think that a lot of that had to do with, you know, a lot of it had to do with the exposition. But I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I really wanted to take in what everything looked like visually. And so I had to both, it was like, I definitely was doing double duty on those pages of like absorbing both the words and the aliens and the background. And I really wanted to appreciate because Mandrake's art was super cool. Mm-hmm. And I really did like how he stylized the different aliens. And every time he went to a different place, they looked different. Some of them looked more human than others. And I thought that that was really neat, too. Sometimes they were just green looking humans with some little differences, as we saw in some of these. And some yeah. of them were like, oh, you are legit frog people, you know? Yeah. So Yeah, like a lot of the that was what I really appreciate was that a lot of the alien designs were were really alien, like in a literal sense of the word. Like they were very unusual, very imaginative. Not all of them looked even remotely human, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I did overall. I didn't mind it. It's definitely not the, the worst one that I the worst series that I've read. No. you know it definitely had some problems you know i definitely had problems obviously with the you know mesoamerican kind of thing that we were talking about there was some weird stuff with that jekyll and hyde where it was like they were like taking pieces of people's brains and putting them together so that was really gross yeah but again like a lot of the stuff i'm like it feels like these are elements of sci-fi stories out of like the 50s or 60s too oh totally this comic is almost 40 years old at this point, so, you know. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. Tastes have changed a bit. <laughs> the lens that we have uh, consumed media through has changed quite a bit, too. So Exactly. Exactly. Well, do you think this series would make a good TV series or a movie? And why? Oh, yeah. We were talking about this earlier. Like, it feels extremely episodic. And I kept Mm -hmm. on thinking about how the whole thing comes across as something that would work as a cartoon designed to sell toys because each issue introduces new characters while keeping some of the central ones. Mm -hmm. Each of these issues is also very self-contained with a cliffhanger for something new for Polly to deal with at the end of each issue. You know, it was very colorful. It was very imaginative. But that said, I don't think it would work as a movie because there's too much to jam into just a couple of hours. That's the mistake they made with the last Airbender movie about a decade ago, which was mm. dreadful. They tried to squeeze an entire season of that show into like two hours. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. It's also it's just a badly made movie. Mm. That's not great. Yeah, I think it would make a good TV series as well, just for the same reasons that you said it. They already kind of feel like little TV episodes, you know, the way that they're kind of resolved at the at the end. And then the villain runs past and goes, better go catch him and then runs off again. You know, (laughs) I'll get you next time, Gadget. (laughs) Outro music. Well, a lot happens in this series, like we said. 
Is there a scene or a particular instance that surprised you or intrigued you throughout the plot? Man, I I keep on thinking about that scene where it's revealed the the young woman in like issue three was actually an alien who had been transformed, like, you know, without her consent. I'm not going to say against her will because she didn't know, but mm-hmm. it's like she didn't have a choice. Everything about that storyline really rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, oh, like mm, this was written by dudes who clearly had never stopped to think about like bodily autonomy or anything like that. And I can see the story that they were trying to tell that like family transcends race and species and all that. But at the same time, it's just like, oh, you were almost there. But at the same time, you missed it by a mile. The other one was I I actually really liked issue five overall, like even how silly it was. I loved the recurring theme of the Asimov circuits. Like I <laughs> screenshotted that. I was going to talk with you about it. I really dug that just apparently Isaac Asimov is a canon part of this universe. Yeah. And which means that iRobot is a part of this universe, which means we probably got that you know, relatively entertaining movie with Will Smith and Alan Tudyk, which I have no shame in admitting is a guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> oh, yeah i I was thinking about the Doctor Jekyll and the Mister Hyde kind of situation that, that Joab kind of finds himself in, and and just to fill everybody in, there were these two like races or two different species it's kind of unclear and it's like it, it is weird because they're like there's the same alien race but like one of them is like really civilized and intelligent and then the other one is much more physically aggressive but like but really good for work Ooh. yeah it's like okay. yeah no it's it smacks of the of the racism <laughs> Smacks yeah. of the racism. Even though they're all the same, they're all like visually identical. Yeah, they're both green. They just like they're just like either aggressive or like pinkies up. It's yeah. So <laughs> yeah, so they there was some drama, and they ended up like like they couldn't all survive, and so they ended up like piecing up their brains and like sticking up their brains into the same head. Yeah, and, and so it wasn't... for certain activities, like they do, like if they have to go hunt or something, which come on, then like the more aggressive one comes out, and if they have to do something more intelligent, like the other one comes out, and it's like oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, they they basically they performed sort of lobotomies, I think, yeah. on the on on the the more physical aliens, and then put in the chunks of their brains that like because it like it wounds up that they all synced up where it was like the part of their brains that had their personality and their intellect would like slot into the other part that wasn't being used and okay and but (laughs) it was very scientific it was something about like like the civilized version of the aliens were they were going through a plague or something that was only affecting them right was that it something yeah it it was kind of vague they became predators what Oh, yeah, you know, and then, yeah, and then they installed, like, a biological timer, Mm -hmm. so they would flip between the two different personalities being in charge of the body, um, so that when, you know, when the the more physical stuff, like hunting and whatnot, 
need to be done, that version would go out and do it. And then it would come back and the civilized version would take care of things at home. And Joeb, his biological timer was on the fritz. And so his personality was flipping back and forth. But like the image that they show, it's like, you know, bodies that are like bound onto a surgical table when they're explaining this all in the flashback with head scars and whatnot. It's again, very problematic. With Yeah, and with the history of just, you know, testing and, and other things on people of color, it just, it feels really like... Which, I mean, that's something that we haven't really culturally dealt with until very recently. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's still something that we're, that we're reckoning with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, through that lens of the last couple of years, it's like, oh, that, that again feels very uncomfortable it's not great (laughs) but in the mid 80s i mean you know that wouldn't have been given the second thought especially because it's like whatever they're green people they're aliens who cares right right (laughs) anyway so what did you think about the art style of the comic i know we talked a little bit about that already Oh, like that's absolutely the highlight of the series. I loved the general style of it. I loved the weirdness Mm -hmm. of it. It's colorful and it's got this neat analog or like kind of low tech sci fi style that was also mixed with like pulp sword and sorcery aesthetics. But like at the same time, some of some of the choices like Spanner's outfit or his Sheck weapon, they feel very silly and they kind of seem to undercut stuff at times. But like. (laughs) You know, for the most part, I dug it. Like, I really enjoyed it overall. I thought I thought it was just really cool looking. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, I really liked his whole outfit. It kind of reminded me of my old band uniform. Like, the way I it kind see of that, buttoned yeah. across the front. I was like, oh, that'd be a sick band uniform. But <laughs> we had capes on our band uniform, so I am just that much closer to being a superhero. Yeah, no, it's got that whole color guard marching band look to it. I could see it. Yeah, it was cool. And I really liked all of the different space scenes. And I thought all of the different planets were really, you know, well thought through. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Well, (laughs) imagine you are Polaris Spanner. And your face is plastered all over multiple galaxies as a wanted criminal. but. You have no idea why. Do you, A, (laughs) act similarly to Polaris and go on the lamb? Or do you, B, take a completely different action? And if so, what would that be? I probably wouldn't, like, go on the run. I'd probably want to know why I was wanted. Same. But but also, I think I'd feel a little bit more secure in the knowledge that I could just get the fuck out of Dodge whenever I wanted to because I could castle. Like, you know. Well, I guess not with the knowledge of having some like bag put over your head the anti-castling bag well yeah but like even he didn't know about it like until that's true not until the very end and he wasn't being punished the other thing is like that wasn't because of whatever baka's crew wanted him for that was something that like he was being punished for because he had castled someone into danger because he theoretically abused his powers yeah yeah exactly yeah i probably would want to know (laughs) like i don't know that i'd want to dodge out of the way just because i would want to know you know to your point yeah i think the rules around castling are really interesting especially the aspect of both parties having to consent and the rule that you can't actively castle someone 
into a dangerous situation. You know, if you can't actively mm-hmm. castle out of a dangerous situation, if it means somebody else will be put in danger because of the castling. What were your feelings around the mechanics and functionality of that ability? I thought it was like really imaginative because it's not something that we've really ever seen or or at least that I've never seen before or since. I did think that it was kind of underutilized in a lot of way, even though it plays such a big role throughout a lot of the stuff. It just it didn't feel it was like it was just kind of a way to get around. I do like the idea that it's this kind of like specially trained ability and that there's this whole set of rules and morality based around it, too. I honestly. I wanted to see it utilized a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. I did too. And I wanted to see some of the the other rules around it other than the two that we know about. Yeah. Because it's it ex- is explained to us that there's more that goes into it than just those aspects of it that we're shown. Yeah. So if you could remove any character from the series. I think I already know, but who would it be? <laughs> what, what was his name again? The little comedic sidekick? Like fucking Gadge or Gadge. Gadget. I think it's Gadge. Yeah. Uh, that fucking comedic sidekick house elf, Gadge. I really don't like those kinds of characters because they're usually wedged into stories so awkwardly that their presence just kind of grinds everything to a halt. And then it's just like, oh man, we got to deal with this again. And then when the story picks up again, it's just going to sit in the back of your head that like, you know, everything just stopped and was like painful for a few minutes i mean i realize that my view isn't the popular one because case in point (laughs) i detest that goddamn snowman olaf from frozen i think he is one of the most grating characters in what is otherwise a very fun movie but you know he's one of the most popular movie characters that disney's ever created so mm, what do i know fun fact i've never seen that movie it's actually really solid. It's just you got to put up with this obnoxious talking snowman. Yeah, I've heard Let It Go enough times that I think I probably will pass. Yeah, fair. <laughs> but yeah, no, I have heard it's a good movie. I just don't. It's one of those things where I just miss a lot of this stuff because I don't have kids. Right. You know, for better or worse, <laughs> I miss these things. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like him either. Um. I did I don't know. Um I I don't feel like many of the characters were overly like dynamic to the point where I would want to pull them as favorite characters, but I also don't know that I really detested a character enough to like say it was my least favorite character. I mean, even just Gadge, I knew Gadge was such a tool anyway that I was like, whatever, he's just around to be the sidekick. Yeah. So you know, to tack onto yours. But I, I don't know that I really had strong feelings about the rest of the characters in this comic. Mm. So Andy appears throughout the series. How do you feel about her character and her role within the comic? She's a character in air quotes. Like, she's got a decent <laughs> intro, but as she continues to kind of pop in and out of the story, I think she needed to overlap with Polymore, but instead she just you know, kind of shows up at random and then bounces until the next time. And then eventually she dies, which, you know, we love women in refrigerators on the show. Mm. Gotta love a good chicken or refrigerator. Yep. Mm. Yeah, that's how I felt about it, too. I don't think that she, they really did her justice. I think she could have been more of a 
you know, a dynamic character and a character that really kicked ass because she really was yeah. built to be that, you know, and I, I did like her intro. I loved the intro. I loved how the two of them, like, you know, became friends and how she was this streetwise kid. And then it just it felt like we never got that kid back when she was aged up. Well, and not only that, but they really didn't, like you said, give them enough interaction. And then they wanted to force a romance, like, yeah, or like even that, a hint that of came a romance out of nowhere. At us. That was very strange. Like, where she's sitting there and making a move on him at a spaceship. And I was like, where did this come from? Like, all right. Yeah, it was very obviously a play because he's like, we've never been interested in each other ever. So mm-hmm. I don't know what you want from me. Yeah. So. If you could have one aspect of the comic further or better explained, what would it be? Oh, it'd be the castling, like 100%. It oh, Totally. You know, it like I said, it's really interesting, but it feels very underbaked, even though it's, you know, a cool concept. Um, I can think of a lot of ways that it could be used with, like, super interesting results, but this comic just sort of barely scratches the surface, like... You know, imagine an underworld organization that'll castle assassins and thieves into areas that they normally couldn't get into, or a specially trained combat unit or a specially trained military unit that focuses on utilizing castling for combat. I think that would be really cool. Like, uh, yeah. do you remember? Do you remember in X two how Nightcrawler had those like really badass action scenes where he's just like teleporting around the yeah. Oval Office? Yes. And, like, we hadn't seen action scenes like that before. Imagine if you had like a whole team of people that are sitting there just zipping in and out of each other's positions. That could be so cool. It'd be so neat. Or maybe, you know, you could have people reaching out to other castlers across the multiverse and then they like bounce between realities. But you know, as it is in the series, it feels like something that the writers thought was a cool way to get us from one issue to another, allowing Spanner to jump into new adventures when he was wrapping up his old ones. But I think this is a concept that you could have someone like Jonathan Hickman or Tom King, who tend to kind of write things in more cerebral, thoughtful ways a lot of the time. Mm. And they could take that idea and run with it. I think it'd be really slick. Totally. Yeah. Well, where else in the DC universe would you like to see Polaris Spanner appear, if Mm -hmm. anywhere? (laughs) Oh, I got thoughts. Oh, good. DC has some really interesting, fun sci-fi characters like that that are all like kind of based on the idea of of moving around the universe. So they have like Adam Strange, they have Ambush Bug, and they also have uh, Space Cabbie. Just like those are the ones that, that like popped into my head, and they're all relatively obscure characters. Like Adam Strange is the most famous, and mainstream audiences don't really know him that well. But like. Ambush Bug can teleport anywhere in the multiverse, and Adam Strange gets like unwillingly teleported between two worlds. And Space Cabby is a a cabby in space, like he just (laughs) flies around space in this like very stylized spaceship designed to look like a taxi cab from the 50s. And I think you could craft like a really weird, fun story with these guys and probably a few others, like bouncing around the galaxy i think it could be really neat i would love to see spanner like accidentally roll into like wonder woman's territory and be like 
I'm it same thing. Same thing as Chris Pine. Like I'm in this like island of women and it's like, yeah, none of them are interested in you, dude. <laughs> like <laughs> So I I think that would be really interesting. But I yeah. think he would be a good matchup for, you know, quite a few quite a few characters, you know, either in mainstream or in I would pay money to watch Batman get his ass served to him with the shack. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. <laughs> Like that'd yes. be pretty good. Oh yeah. I would I would pay to see that for sure. Yeah. You know, we we hate a billionaire. <laughs> yeah. Well, would it surprise you that Polaris Spanner actually did make another couple of appearances other places? I mean, actually, yeah, it would because I could not find much on this dude and you'd think that DC would do something with him. So he was actually in DC's Who's Who, Volume 1, Issue 21, which was published in November 1986, mm-hmm. which I actually may or may not have that issue, Okay, since I do have a fair number of those in single issue form, as well as Justice League of America Vibe, <laughs> Volume 1, Issues 5 and 6, and that was published in June and July of 2013, respectively. So How weird. I know. <laughs> oh, that's so that's so weird. Yeah, and I I think he just came up as a side character. I think that was before the Flash TV show was on, and like when Vibe became like a major character and like part of that whole universe. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. Wild. But I mean, that's that's all I've got for s- the world of Spanner's Galaxy. What do you say we we move on to our brain wrinkles section oh, of God, things? Oh, God, yeah. Let's get out of here. <laughs> well, we have reached brain wrinkles, which is that one thing, comics or comics adjacent, that we just cannot get out of our thick little skulls. Just kind of roll it around in there. Mike, I have absolutely just been yakking it up for a good-ass time now. Why don't you go ahead and start us off? Yeah, there was a trend on Twitter that I saw yesterday about comic book icks and basically people complaining about things that they didn't like in comics. And, you know, some of them were legit problems, noting how women and people of color and other minorities are often mistreated narratively. But, like, there was just there was a lot of rage and grumbling about stuff in general and like there's a there was a lot of rage about like woke stuff going in on in comics or how stories changed to include movie lore weren't you know the real versions of the stories and you know james gunn <laughs> needs to be fired because he doesn't respect the source material like Zack snyder oh my god and it just it made me feel really tired and I'm at the point where I'm just exhausted whenever I see a bunch of toxic gatekeepers trying to tell people about what they should and shouldn't enjoy. And it also reaffirmed how much I want this show to generally be a positive celebration of comics, even when they're problematic. We're not always going to sit there and enjoy what we read or, or like something, but I feel like we find nuggets or small things that we can't appreciate, even... Even in things like Crazy Man. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
it was just one of those things that made me want to be a better, more positive comic book fan. Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, what about you? Like, what's, what has been occupying your brain outside of Spanner's Galaxy lately? It's, it's actually in Spanner's Galaxy still. <laughs> oh, okay. So there was a letter to the editor in the guest meanwhile section mm-hmm. in one of these. And it's actually a very well-written kind of note about this guy's comic book icks, actually. So it's kind of funny that like, mm. <laughs> but his comic book icks are really about how women are treated. And so he, I mean, for something that was published in 1985, Michael Pickens here, let me just tell you, and Michael Pickens, let me tell you, left his full ass address, apartment complex name and everything. (laughs) But at any rate, he starts it off saying basically that like DC isn't really the worst offender of this. Marvel's kind of worse. And he kind of gives some some examples about Storm because <laughs> the whole Storm thing was going on at the time. I mean, a lot of these things that he mentions in here are the same gripes that I have with the comics of that time. And I think it's really interesting that DC would print something like this, mm. but not also make an effort to change the things that are listed here. Like you've already gone to the effort to show that you have read this and that you understand what's being said, but I don't really see that the effort moving forward out of 85 really told that same story. Hmm. Yeah, that's, hmm. Like, it's one of those things where I'm like, were they just hungry for content to put on there and they just didn't care? Or, Maybe so. It's but it's a hmm. full page. It's a full page of this guy's. I mean, really, opinion piece. And he writes at one point, "I represent Wasp, uh, which isn't great now, but the women anti-stereotyping patrol. We have been attempting to correct this injustice." Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, and he kind of has a call to call to action for other people to write in as well. And so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It says he writes, for gosh sakes, lay off the heroines, will ya? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like that, but yeah. I do too. I do too. So thanks, Michael Pickens from 19. If you're listening, we appreciate you. (laughs) Yeah, he's from from Utica, Utica, Ohio. So thank you so much, Michael Pickens, Utica, Ohio, 1985. Many appreciations. And if you, if anybody could hear me actually fidgeting through pages, it, I physically, I read the physical copies and that was in the opinion piece. That's really cool. At the end. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, that concludes our episode for this week. We will be back next week with another super fun dollar bin discovery, dollar dollar bin discovery. But until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. If you'd like to support us, please be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.